Toronto is likely going to lose this game as they have fallen apart in the fourth quarter. They're not going to foul, folks. This one's in the bank. And earning interest. The final. The Bucks 108. Raptors 100 in game one. Well, that wasn't ideal. I mean, it was an ideal start, a dream start. This is the start of free association, and Raptors lose 108, 100 in game one. The Raptors led 83-76 at the end of the third, and then it was pretty ugly. I'm Donovan Bennett. J.D. Bunkus is with me. J.D., to me, it's all about the fourth quarter. Yeah, mostly. Our guy, Eric Smith, had a tweet. The Raptors non-Kawhi Kyle Lowry players only hit one field goal starting in the third quarter. For me, it was more just a tale of two halves, where in the first half, you get this Raptors team that we were familiar with from Game 5 in Toronto, the Game 1 versus Philly in Toronto team, where everybody's clicking, everybody looks good, the spacing is there because the guys like Gasol are knocking down shots, Lowry's hitting shots, Siakam knocks down a three. I think they had six threes in the first quarter, around the six-minute mark, and you're looking at that Bucks team starting to miss shots and starting to talk yourself into, yeah, okay, I get the hype. I understand the Bucks hype. They've been great. They're well-coached. They're deep. They've got Giannis. They've got Middleton. All right, I get it. But the Raptors starting five on paper and in better form of execution is nicer. And I thought that depth in that second half had to have played a big key because there were two things. One is that Kawhi Leonard started to lock in and... I think took way too much of the shot share, like didn't start looking for teammates, was taking a lot of bad shots. And then when his teammates were involved, the non-Kyle Lowry division, which I know we'll get to, they hit one field goal in the second half. Like they were 0 of 15 in the fourth quarter. It was just night and day what you started to see from guys like Marcus Saul. Danny Green was a complete ghost. Pascal Siakam from a nine-point first quarter ends up scoring, I think, five points the rest of the way, three of which were off of a fluky three that he shot from basically four feet off of the three-point line. Just, I thought the Raptors' depth caught up with them because they looked a little gassed in that second half. They lost their legs. They weren't able to shoot, and it wasn't really anything that the Bucks changed. They just started hitting more threes, which you knew it was going to happen. Yeah, I don't think Kawhi's shots or the amount of shots was the issue. He only had five shots in the fourth, and there's been games when... You liked his game, though? Well, no. Yeah. But I don't think it's because of the amount of shots he took. There's been games where he's taken five shots after the final timeout in the fourth, and you felt good about it because he's the guy who's going to take you home. He's the closer. I do think it's more the fourth than the second half because going into the fourth, they were still up seven. They're still doing a great job packing the paint against Giannis. But in that fourth, they went five for 22 from the floor. The Bucks went nine of 18. All Kyle Lowry. Rebound, six Raptors, 18 for the Bucks. Points in the paint, two for Toronto. Eight for Milwaukee. It started for me when they started the fourth with Kawhi sitting for the first three and a half minutes. In that span, they get outscored eight to three. And really, it was an 8 0 run that ended with a Kyle Lowry three. The inability to maintain leads when Kawhi sits continues to be a problem. Inability for anyone else to create their own shot. Kyle did it last night. Other than Kawhi, is still a problem. And here's why because I think. Kawhi looks tired. Yeah. He looked gassed. 
to me, it wasn't about the amount of shots he took. It was the fact that he wasn't able to just force the issue and force through a double team and overpower multiple guys to get a comfortable look from his spots the way he was in the Philly series when he brought the Raptors home and the way he did time after time in the Orlando series. Yeah, I get that. It's just that if you are that way, you got to start to trust your teammates a little bit more, even if they are struggling. Try to get them involved. Try to get somebody some confidence to knock down a shot. And too many times, I saw Kawhi Leonard off balance. And again, it's not that he hasn't hit these shots. And I know we're going to get people who listen to this that freak out and say, how can you say anything about Kawhi? He hit the shot. And it's like, okay, he did. And now we're on to the next round. And we'll always remember that. But now it's time to talk about this. Too many times off balance. Too many times into multiple defenders. Too many times too early in the shot clock. There was just, yeah, the decision-making, I thought that was Kawhi's worst game of the playoffs, especially if you consider that he was sick in that one game against Orlando. Like, I just, I didn't think he had it last night. And part of me says, okay, well, in the second half, your teammates dissipated. And again, the only reason that I bring up the third quarter is I don't think the Bucks hit a three in that quarter. It was a real opportunity lost for the Raptors to step on their throats. But I guess the question to you, Donovan, is, is there a little panic for you today? Like, For me, that seemed like such a game that was almost needed to win based on the way the Bucs shot it. Like 25% from deep, 11 of 44 from three. Giannis gets contained to, I think, what, 24 points? They didn't look spectacular. Middleton was basically out of that game. Bledsoe didn't have a very good game. I know Brooke Lopez comes through and has a monster performance, but I just feel like there's more to regulate from the Bucs than there was from the Raptors, and the Raptors left that one on the table. I do think it was a missed opportunity. They left it on the table. you got to beat in a best of seven, obviously. This is not news to anybody. You have to beat a really good team four times. And you have to perform well at least four times. They performed well. They played really well. The first half was probably their best half of basketball in the playoffs. They played really well against a really good opponent. And they got a really good performance in game one from Kyle Lowry, who averages nine points in game ones. He gave you 30. And so it was a wasted opportunity. But there is no panic from me yet because this is the playoffs. This is what happens in the playoffs. Every game is its own chapter, and it's a marathon, not a sprint, to get four wins in a two-week span. And people started to panic after the Bucks lost game one versus the Celtics. And some people started to panic after the Raptors lost game one versus Orlando. And some people panicked, and I was one of them, after the Raptors lost two against Philly. And some people panicked when the Sixers lost early in their series against the Nets. Like, Every game is literally its own chapter. And if things are going to come back to the mean, is Brooke Lopez going to score 29 points again? Is he going to hit four threes? Is he going to have four blocks and 11 rebounds? He scored zero points in game five against the Celtics. He's not someone who they're considering to be their leader in any category, never mind points. And so, yes, a lot of the Bucks struggled. It's a glass half full, glass half empty issue. I think they played great defense throughout end in the fourth quarter on everyone other than Brooke Lopez. And I think that's something that you can hang your hat on because the Bucks, as good as they are defensively, they're an elite, elite offensive team with Budenholzer now running the show. Can we talk about Brooke Lopez just for a second? Passes out to Lopez, a three, fires it, bang, go! I get that the Lakers, and I skewered them yesterday on Twitter, like they let him walk so they could sign JaVale McGee. They could have signed Brooke Lopez to essentially nothing, and he was a player who clearly would have fit extremely well with LeBron James. Like, we already have the playbook on that. Why couldn't he have been a better version of Channing Frye? So, or a lesser version of Kevin Love. Obviously, he would have fit with the Lakers. And this is kind of one of those ones where in the draft, where a guy falls to the second round and you blame the team that's right in front of them being the Lakers, where, well, why didn't you guys pick him? He was already still there. It's like, you have to kind of blame all the other teams in the NBA 
for leaving a guy like Brook Lopez out there until the middle of July where he signed for $3.7 million with the Bucks. Because, yeah, I don't anticipate he's going to have another 30-point game. In fact, I didn't even know Brook Lopez could do some of the things that he was doing yesterday. It's been a while since he was the guy who scored, you know, 20 a game for the Brooklyn Nets. And he's doing these just spin-around buckets to the cup, like from distance. He's getting offensive putbacks over Marcus Saul, where he's just tipping it in with one hand. He's a force on the defensive end. He came up with just like a monster block on Kawhi Leonard later in that game. It was Leo in the broadcast last night who I think astutely said, he's like, I've never seen Brooke Lopez so active. And I thought the same thing. I was like, where has this Brooke Lopez been? I always knew about the shooting, especially with the feet set and in transition, being able to catch it in his spot and knock one down. But this makes the whole league look stupid for letting a guy who, again, scored 20 a game not too long ago and who played on a really bad Lakers team fall to this group of bucks where he just fits perfectly. It just... The Raptors couldn't have used Brook Lopez? Like, everybody's on the hook for this. Yeah, I think the best thing about Brook Lopez's story is he's someone who's reinvented himself. He's been forced to change his game because of the way the game has changed to make himself a relevant player. And I think when people looked at Brook Lopez, they looked at the former back-to-the-basket guy in Brooklyn. They haven't realized that he's done a lot of hard work to change his game so that he can play in this era. His first 368 games of his career, he hit zero three-pointers. In his last 349, he's hit 436. Yeah, that's more than any other center in the NBA since that time. It's crazy for someone who really didn't shoot outside of the paint to be shooting so well from three. But I will say, as well as he played last night, and this series is going to be which team centers hit more threes at some point because both teams are willing to give that up to pack the paint. I was watching and saying, well, how many threes does this guy have to hit at the end of the shot clock for you to change the way you're playing him like he's hit four four threes is what Steph Curry averages in a game I understand when Joel Embiid is taking those threes you don't want to run out to him too hard and close him you like that because you'd prefer him doing that than putting it on the floor taking you to the block you'll live with that Brooke Lopez is not going to give you a pump fake and dribble past you if he dribbles at all that's a win defensively so at some point when he has been one of their best three-point shooters, I know he's a center, but that's still a big part of their offense. At some point, do you not run him off the line instead of allowing him to catch and shoot freely time and time again? That, to me, was, was maddening to watch. Okay, so we were, we were talking about things that concern us, and I think that Brook Lopez, shockingly enough, is not that high on the list because I'm afraid of Brook Lopez for sure. Like when he's open or when he has his feet set on, and he's running in transition and they feed him in his spot and he doesn't, have to go down low to pick it up, although he did hit one like that last night. He's terrifying, but I don't view Brook Lopez as like the guy who's going to swing this series. That said, do you think that this is a situation now where you need to ask for more Serge Ibaka minutes and less of Marcus Gasol? Because in that last series against Philly, Gasol was great against Joel Embiid, and I was getting this text from friends, like, how can Gasol defend Joel Embiid, but why can't he contain Brook Lopez? And I reminded them that the one thing about Gasol that was frustrating in that last series were some of those closeouts on Joel Embiid, where he's getting a little too aggressive with it, and he never really seemed to find that balance, and that was when Embiid was able to put the ball on the deck and make Gasol look a little slow. And if the Bucks are going to get 15 offensive rebounds, if you're going to get that, then I'm not saying concede it. They're going to have to go back to the Danny Green school of, hey, rebounding is the key to this series, and that's what we're going to have to reiterate throughout the postseason. But I think there was a pretty strong case outlined for more Serge Ibaka as the adjustment in game two. And again, maybe even trying some of those big, big lineups 
that Nick Nurse has run out there before because if you do take a saw of the game, I understand that you're leaving the paint open for Giannis Antetokounmpo to just be a wrecking ball. It's just a really difficult position that the Raptors are in in this series of either having Gasol play out to the line, but you don't have anybody in the paint and you're still conceding all these rebounds. So far be it for me to say on the night when he was minus 17 in 17 minutes that Serge Ibaka is the issue and we need more Serge Ibaka. But I'm here to tell you that we need more Serge Ibaka. And when you look at when this team is well, it's because he's contributing a great deal. In the playoffs, when he scored double figures, they're 6-0. and When he hasn't, they're 2-5. and And 17 minutes is not enough. There's no, at the best of times, reason why Serge should be playing 17 minutes and Gasol should be playing 40. Especially when Gasol is 2 of 11 from the floor. And Serge is more athletic, which you need in this series, especially the amount that you're helping on Giannis or getting caught on Giannis on a switch, especially when the Bucs play Giannis at the 5 so often. It's one of their best lineups. The other thing is, and this is going to sound crazy, the way the usage of Kawhi has been so high, Serge is actually, at times, a more impactful offensive player than Marc Gasol. Because Marc Gasol has not been willing to shoot from three. Serge, if anything, you'd like to find a happy medium mm-hmm. where Serge is not as trigger-happy and Mark is willing and able to shoot when it's kicked to him and he's not looking to make the perfect extra pass and giving Kawhi a hockey assist. And some of the bonus that Marcus Gasol gives you in terms of a playmaker with his great passing offensively, a lot of that is negated, again, when the primary action is going through Kawhi Leonard offensively. In those situations, I would like Serge's spacing. I would like Serge's offensive rebounding. And from that standpoint, I do think in this matchup specifically, you, we should see more Serge Ibaka. That it made sense to tie Gasol to Embiid against Philly, but it doesn't really make sense in this series in terms of guarding Brooke Lopez and or helping on or guarding Giannis. Yeah. I think the Raptors' defense, for the most part, looked pretty solid in this game. I don't think that the Bucks were just cold when they couldn't hit a three in the third quarter, and that's part of what I think leans Nick Nurse to keeping Gasol is that he is still a better defensive player overall, and I think he's someone that you know communicates a lot and does create a problem in the paint. Like, he had that one really nice block, but... Gasol does have that in him. Like, he is a tough guy at the basket, and he's big enough, I think, to at least deter Giannis a little bit. Like, I don't think Serge has that size, but yeah, 17 minutes to me, not enough. And what's scaring me about Gasol is, like, the three-point shooting, you just have to keep taking it because the Bucks concede those shots to your bigs, especially above the break. Like, that's what they do. But the mid-range stuff, like the pick-and-pop stuff, those are things I trust Serge Ibaka with more now. How many times did Gasol miss a field goal where Lowry set him up or Kawhi set him up, you know, like within 12 feet of the basket and he's got a wide open look and he just couldn't get one to drop. I, his offense is bad. And again, it goes back to that same thing you were talking about with Kawhi Leonard and the same reason why I think I'm most afraid of that loss. Why that loss stings the most is not because they had it for so long and that they, you know, hit 10 to 22 in the first half and Kyle Lowry has one of his best performances in the playoffs ever. It's just that... The Raps looked so gassed as a team in that second half. Like, Lowry seemed to be the only guy that, for all the years we've killed Kyle Lowry about having cardio issues late in the playoffs, he was the only guy with legs. Like, Gasol not being able to knock down a shot, not being able to move fluidly. You're playing these guys 40 minutes a night. This is kind of how it's going to come back to bite you in the ass. And, like, I guess the next guy to get to is Danny Green. Like, where the hell is Danny Green? 
this is getting to be a bit preposterous because I mentioned this last time, but you see J.J. Redick running around, and I know, again, not the same player. I'm getting to the point now where I'm a little tired of just saying, well, his defense, well, his defense. I know Danny Green's a good defender. He should be a good defender. Why is it excusable that half of his game is just completely off the table right now? Like, he took three threes in that game. I'm not counting the fourth one because it's garbage time, and right after he misses the free throw, he has the terrible turnover late in the fourth quarter where... I don't know why he's just hunting for a foul against the sideline and ends up falling down and turning it over to Chris Middleton. I don't know if it's a coaching issue. I don't know if it's because Kawhi has taken so many shots and Lowry's taken so many shots, but the Raptors have to do a better job of freeing Danny Green up and at least having him taking some shots, getting some looks. Again, one three-pointer in the Game 7 against Philadelphia. And I know we said a lot of the fourth quarter, but... Danny Green has basically been a non-factor in the last three games offensively, and I think it's on him, I think it's on his teammates, and I think it's on the coaching staff to just recognize, like, you got one of the better three-point shooters in the league. You had a guy who's in the three-point contest. He can't be taking less than three deep shots a game. Yeah, I mean, even in Game 7 against Philadelphia, he sat the entire fourth quarter. He still played upwards of 30 minutes, played 35 minutes last night. The turnover you mentioned where it's like he was trying to really yeah, he wanted to foul. show off how good his handles were. It was real odd. I like, given looking the, at the ref half the time and not even looking at his defender. Given the time and score, you kind of just want to secure the ball and you're not the best ball handler, so you just want to give it to Kyle Lowry, who was willing to take it. He hasn't been great. He's been 3 of 13 from 3 in his last 3 games. It's the other thing in this specific series, with Kawhi not guarding Giannis and Giannis not guarding Kawhi, both coaches basically calling a truce and being like, listen, these guys are too valuable. We won't play them against each other unless it's super high leverage situations. Even last night, that wasn't the case. Kawhi is really guarding the second most impactful offensive player in Chris Middleton. Danny Green's work rate on defense is not that high. So there isn't a situation where, all right, we're going to give you the Clay Thompson exemption, where you're working so hard defensively that if your shot isn't falling, we get it. Eventually, it's going to come back. You do a lot of positive things. In this series, that's not really the case, which is why you need more from him offensively, which is why his struggle is really, really, really underscore how much you miss OG Ananobi. And that brings me to my last point, and that's the bench in general. The bench is, consists of only three guys at this point. They played a cumulative of 40 minutes. Although I was happy not to see Jody Meeks, I won't lie. That I don't <laughs> Nick disagree Nick Nurse said with. on primetime, like, maybe Jody Meeks. I was like, maybe not, though, Nick. Yeah. Well, I mean, the bench played a total of 40 minutes, and you had four starters, other than Danny Green, play 40 minutes or more. That's not a recipe that's going to have you beat the Bucks. Why do you think Norm came out so early? Like, Norm had it in the first half. And then there was a substitution for him where I was like, oh, I thought it was going to be Fred Van Vliet coming out of the game, and it was Norm Powell. And, like, what did you make of that? Do you, do you remember what I'm talking about in the first half? I do. No Raptor played less than Norm. Played just over That didn't make any sense to me. Norm minutes. was, like, getting it going. You've had playoff Norm before. And Norm has had big moments in the playoffs against the Bucks before. I did not understand that. And I do find the X's and O's, the adjustments that we will see, between these two coaches fascinating because everyone said, all right, well, Masai is justified now for making the trade for Kawhi. Look how it's panned out. No one can be upset about if he called or didn't call DeMar DeRozan. Kawhi Leonard hit the shot. He's been the best player in the playoffs. Very good, Masai. Your offseason was a success. Not so fast, my friends. I think the Kawhi trade was a no-brainer in July of last year, but 
I think the decision that you could scrutinize was who's the head coach of this team? When you yeah. walk away from a coach who was coach of the year, the first guy you talk to is now coaching the team who has the best record in the NBA, who whether or not he wanted to coach Giannis or you didn't offer him a contract, whoever said no, we don't want to date. The fact is he's not in Toronto. You hire someone who was on the staff prior after having an exhaustive search. You had a coaching vacancy early in the offseason and you were one of the last teams to fill it. And the team that you ran up against and you had struggles beating, Cleveland Cavaliers. Everyone said, oh, the East is different. LeBron's no longer here. He's gone West. It's wide open. True. But the exact replica, stylistically, of that Cavs team is the Bucks. Mm -hmm. You have a generational talent who makes the half court a fast break that physically wills baskets. And then you have all shooters around them. The Bucks are the Cavs with much better defense. That's what they are. And I find it fascinating that Nick Nurse, who was brought in here to play at a crazy high pace, to get the offense going, well, the offensive pace is not good. The Bucks have the best pace in the playoffs. The Raptors have one of the slowest. They've got wins off of their defense in playing big, not playing small, which is anti-Nick Nurse basketball. Mm-hmm. I give him credit for the adjustments, but if... Buttonholzer badly outcoaches Nick Nurse in his playoff series. We will be looking at the offseason decision at the coach differently than we did in terms of trading the stars. So you know this because I think we've talked about this a million times. I don't think Casey should have stayed. He had run his course here. I thought that it was the right time to move off of Dwayne. But one thing I always gave him a ton of credit for was his feel for the bench and his feel for the right closing lineups. He had a really good idea of who to substitute and when to substitute them and when to go to a guy. And I really don't get that with Nick Nurse. Like, I don't have that same confidence in him. There's too many times where, again, like his bench guys are struggling and he goes back to the well of the three-man bench units instead of putting them in better positions to succeed. Like, I find him rigid with his substitutions. Like, he's like, okay, Fred, this is where Fred comes in and this is where Fred comes out. You're like, okay, man, but Fred doesn't have it tonight. Like, Norm does. Leave Norm in the basketball game. Have a little bit of a feel for this. It's kind of the same substitution packages, regardless of the opponent, regardless of the situation. He has a very difficult time getting out of those things. And this is a bit of a hot take, but there are some parallels here. I think he has a little bit of David Blatt in that the Cavaliers hired David Blatt and then they got LeBron and it was like, uh, what are we supposed to do now? The plan was to let this guy have this different style of offense and do his own thing and have control of this offense and be the man. But LeBron comes and it just shifts everything so quickly. And then similarly with the Raptors, They make Nick Nurse the guy. He's supposed to be an up-tempo pace guy, no isolation, ball movement. This is Nick Nurse. And then they trade for Kawhi Leonard, and he comes in, and that's an ISO-heavy player that, you know, he's mixing in and out of the lineup, only getting him for 60 games. Great coaches make it work, right? For a great coach, having a star player like Kawhi Leonard is a blessing, But I still feel like there's this transition year with Nick Nurse where it's like a college coach. Like, he had a system, and he's having a tough time adjusting to the idea of having a Kawhi Leonard. And he's never been able to just grab it. Like, he's never been able to just have a full comprehension of what this team is and how to coach them properly. Like, he just always feels that one step behind. And that's why I think he's always tinkering. And we still see stuff like the Jody Meek stuff in the last round. We're like, what the hell is this? It's because he's still missing it just by like a half step he's close he's not a terrible coach I don't think he's costing them this series by any stretch like it's still the talent on the floor I've just never felt like Nick Nurse has 
a command of this team like you would want a head coach of a really good basketball team like the Toronto Raptors? I think Nick Nurse has done a really good job. He's had 20 different starting lineups. He's unlocked and brought Pascal Siakam to a level that no one we talk about had, that had foreseen. He has flourished this year under Nick Nurse in the same way that we give, or I give anyways, credit to Dwayne Casey for unlocking things in Kyle Lowry that no other head coach was able to. Frankly, unlocking things in DeMar DeRozan that no other head coach was able to. Wasn't able to unlock any defense, but he still became a better player under his tutelage. Not if he didn't try. I remember Casey saying, oh, you know, DeMar was Every offseason. with Team USA, and Coach Thibodeau was really getting his butt and chewing his ass. He's going to be a better defensive player. I, I missed I, that I in training camp, the idea of, all oh, the preseason game. DeMar looks... Like, he's a new man on defense. I will say this. It's been documented. You could look at my author page. I wrote at the time that I don't think Casey was the issue, that you could have brought Phil Jackson back in his prime, and he wasn't going to get that Raptors team any farther mm-hmm. than Dwayne Casey did, so why are you firing Dwayne Casey for? If you had the 12-man lineup that they did to start July, and you had a time machine, and you could look in the playoffs and look at the lineups that you would need in crunch time to win— playing two bigs, really anchoring everything off of your defense. And then forget about who the previous coach was. You just had an open search for coaches. Anyone who was available, you had to interview. And the first guy you walked in the door was Dwayne Casey. Hey, sit down. Love what you did with the Mavericks. Mm-hmm. Dirk was the offensive star. You figured out a defensive rotation to stop the Miami Heat at their prime. Great. Love that resume. Don't call us. We'll call you. Then you brought in Nick Nurse right afterwards. Hey, Love what you did in Britain. Love what you did in the G League where you were outscoring people in empty gyms. Great. Thanks. Yeah, we got your CV. Awesome. We'll be in touch. Who would you have hired, right? If we just, in isolation, looked at the two people, who have you hired? This is super off script, but I am watching this playoff series. The previous playoff series against the Sixers was a referendum on the trades that the two teams made. Mm Mm-hmm. Did it make sense for Elton Brand to get super tough and trade away their future for a winning now situation, knowing that if they bring this team back, they're going to be capped out and they will have no room to improve? And the referendum on Masai going all in in the offseason last year and all in at the deadline. And the Raptors got through that series. This series is a referendum on the two franchises and the head coaching decisions that they made. Because Coach Bud is great, but he's also never been to an NBA Finals. And he's had a couple front-running teams in Atlanta that when it got tough, they lost. And I do think that the Eastern Conference bracket broke really nicely for them. Mm -hmm. And this will be their toughest test. And Nick Nurse has been great, but he hasn't been infallible in this postseason. So the storylines and the subplots to me is what makes... The playoffs fascinating, and that's the thing I'll be watching. What do you think is happening with Pascal Siakam? Because, again, he's 2-9 last night from 3, and one of those 3s was, yeah, let's be honest here, like this is a massive fluke right at the end. It's just a buzzer beater. He had to throw it up. 16. Raptors at the end of the frame. They get the triple to go. And the buzzer beater from Pascal Siakam, who was 1 of 7 before that, he hits the 28-footer to send Toronto into the fourth with an 83-76 lead. And if anything, it kind of leads to what I do believe is happening with him, which is a lot of this is mental. He's fighting it right now. Like, he had nine points in the first quarter, and you thought, okay, good, one-two punch. They threw up that graphic. It's him and Kawhi side-by-side, each with nine points. You thought, this is the formula for success with the Raptors. And I told you, one of my keys going into the series, if not my biggest key, I think it was yours as well, was how Siakam 
changes his game because he was going to be defended by Giannis. Giannis was going to be in the paint as a help defender. It was going to be very similar to the Joel Embiid situation. But Siakam had had a full series against a guy like that to make an adjustment. And I just thought in that game, seven points after the first quarter, three of which is that fluky shot, Siakam looks lost to me. He looks like a guy who is very unsure of himself and that adjustments, which we were afraid of all season, which is like sag off of him, force him to beat you with the jump shot. They're working. When you do something well and it's your strength, the more you do it, the better off you are. Steph Curry, his strength is shooting three-point shots. So if he gets nine in a game, that's a positive. If anything, if he gets 18 in a game, that's a positive. The larger the sample, the better off he'll be. Pascal Siakam is someone who is able to shoot a three, not someone who should be shooting them in high volume. And so what I think has happened is a scouting report. He's a willing corner three taker, which makes him more dangerous, makes him more playable. It's not something he should be doing at a high volume, but what he should be doing in high volume, and yeah, high percentage, but he wasn't shooting nine a game. What he should be doing in high volume is rim running, is getting out on the fast break, is getting putbacks and tip-ins, is when the ball is swung to him on the weak side, driving against his man. But what we've seen is people have packed the paint against him. What we've seen is people have waited for them to spin back to that left hand. I think the shots that he's getting are the ones that people want him to take. And so that's what I think the issue with Pascal Siakam is. I had an issue last night, actually. NBA schedule comes out. Eastern Conference Finals start on a Wednesday. It's on Sportsnet. Great. Good for us. We did some pregame coverage on IG Live, myself and Faisal. Make sure you check that out. Didn't do postgame coverage. Amazing. I can play on my Wednesday rec league. Beautiful. Except the game is on. What is a young man to do? You get SN now. Bring the work laptop. I tither. That's just some live read. I'm sorry to interrupt, but that was, whoa, I, was I was sucked right in. Continue. <laughs> this, is a, this is a true story. All right. I tether my work data. May have an issue with that later, but it doesn't matter. Because I had SN now. I was able to watch the game when I wasn't playing the game, I was able to rewind all the way back. So anything that I missed in preparation for this podcast, I could take the notes. I can make sure that I was prepared for you, the listener. But at all times, I knew the score of the game on the court, which was not important, even though it was a beatdown. We won handily. But the game in Milwaukee, SN now, it's not just the NBA, Stanley Cup playoffs, we've got you covered. All of the Blue Jays games plus out-of-market baseball, we've got you covered. Tennis action. SN now. And listen, this is just a secret between myself, JD, and you. Our bosses aren't listening. If you don't like it later, you can unsubscribe at any time. Anytime. But right now, with the amount of playoff games that are happening, SN now is a product for you, so you don't miss anything. One thing I will be covering in the future, oh. the NBA draft, oh. which there is added intrigue because of the draft lottery. I believe oh, you wanted to talk about this. I did want to talk about this. I wanted to shoot this by you. So... Well, as the lottery was happening, I'll admit it was two different stages for me. I don't know if it was similar for you. It was like, I saw the Lakers jump up and I, I grew up a Seattle Supersonics fan. So I just grew up hating the Lakers and I loved Shaquille O'Neal as a kid and I loved Penny and Shaq, but I can't stand the Lakers. I really can't. I love LeBron, but I can't stand the Lakers. And I'm watching this draft lottery and they jump up into the top four and I'm just devastated. Like I'm head in hands. Can't believe this is happening. I'm like picturing Zion in LA and just, it's like Shaq all over again, where I'm going to have to watch this player that I adore play for a team that I despise. 
And then the results pour in and it's LA at four, which actually was kind of sweet because four and wherever the Lakers were supposed to pick is probably not going to be that different from a talent standpoint. I think this is a top three draft. And then the rest, like you can take Jared Culver at four. Great. I don't think that's changing your franchise. Then three is the Knicks. I feel bad for their fan base, but I kind of go, oof. okay, how does this change things? Two comes in as the Memphis Grizzlies, who are now poised to be Canada North, like no team ever before. If they did, for some reason, take R.J. Barrett, they'd have R.J. Barrett, Dylan Brooks, Jonas Valanciunas, (laughs) DeLon Wright, the CJ's PJ's commercials running throughout the country. Like, we basically get the Grizzlies back. You have to give us the Grizzlies back. But the Pelicans hit one, and my initial thought is, well, that sucks. He's going to go to a market where there's not really a lot of fans. And I like David Griffin. He's a great analyst, and I think he is a good GM. But his track record is a little overhyped considering LeBron James just decided to go back to the Cavaliers and Kevin Love wanted to join him there. But I started to spin this really positive. If you're the New York Knicks, can you not put together a trade package? And this is assuming that they sign... Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving, but even if they don't, like, doesn't this move make sense because you'd probably be able to re-sign him? Packaging the number three pick, which is likely to be R.J. Barrett, Kevin Knox, the knockdown shooter that's going into his second year from Kentucky, a high pedigree guy that probably fell a little bit to them in the draft. Both of those Dallas picks that they acquired in the Chris Tapps Porzingis trade and a future first for Anthony Davis. Is that more of an attractive trade package than... Maybe the Celtics don't even put anything on the table of Kyrie Walks, period. But then something built around Jason Tatum to you. I mean, you could, but you could have also just traded one pick, the first overall pick, for Anthony no, Davis. No, 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 I'm not doubting that. I'm just saying that for Canadians, wouldn't you not be thrilled at the prospect of having Zion, or just as a basketball fan, of having Zion and RJ reunited with the New Orleans Pelicans and having the Duke Brotherhood, these two lovable guys that are, I think, both magnetic, both just have a poise kind of be on their years. Both are just such interesting basketball players for so many different reasons on the Pelicans together and locking them into essentially the first six or seven years of their careers as a duo after playing in college. Like, is that not the ideal scenario that the Knicks become relevant with a big market star like Anthony Davis, a chip that essentially locks them into Kevin Durant and the New Orleans Pelicans? I'm saying maybe there's less risk to taking R.J. Barrett in a bunch of picks than Jason Tatum, a mercurial player who's two years down the line in his contract, coming off of a down season and might not be able to play well with others and might not be able to be in a situation where Zion can be the guy. Yeah, I don't think it's unlikely. But, I mean, people, people like it. And I would like it, but there's people already speculating that Zion is going to force his way out of New Orleans and threaten to go back to Duke for another year. He's yet to hire an agent. He's yet to sign a shoe That's deal. Not happening. You think he would leave the number one pick money on the table and go back? Is the number one pick money going to be different next year? He, this is a guy who you know had a pretty scary moment when he exploded his shoe. I, I think that well, would be... shoes is an interesting point. I'm saying because that. I haven't seen that. Windhorse has said it. Really? It's, yeah. A couple people have reported that it is not probable, Just but it is possible. Just to Seattle already, all right? Like, well, he's, it, it, the funny thing is, and you, when you look at the videos of the ticket office and salespeople going ham when they yeah. got the first overall pick and then immediately see them tweet out videos of them on the phones selling season tickets. They're assuming Zion is going to be there. And oh. David Griffin is assuming that Zion gives them an opportunity to maybe lure AD and so that you don't have to make any trades and that already with Drew Holiday, a really good point guard, they're a team that could be a force to be reckoned with. The interesting thing though is Zion is yet to settle on an agent, but he has meetings with three. CAA, which is typical, 
in media and sports, specifically in basketball, CAA is the conglomerate. Rock Nation, an agency that was started by a rapper. Uh, on the come up, has quite a big clientele. It does. And Clutch, agency started by LeBron James. Oh, don't tell me. And so two of the three agencies that he is talking to are people who would be willing to say, your value is not just your NBA contract. It's your value as a marketer. It's your sneaker deal. And where would that value be more lucrative for you in New York or in LA? Certainly not in New Orleans. And so they could make the argument that, yeah, like, sure. So you want him to pull a Steve Francis here. I don't want him to do anything. And do you think I, he could? I don't think he's going to be crying on draft night. He looked pissed when it was announced. And then he's such a likable and happy kid that I hate that I'm at this stage in my life where, you know, I'm looking at these guys and their kids now. But anyway, that he did pull it together. But there was a lot of side-by-side McDavid Zion pictures going around, and I appreciated those. Chris Haynes, I believe, also... Chris Haynes likes to stir the pot. He's on my show today. Is he? Well, I believe it was him who reported that Zion was whisked out of the room quickly after the Pelicans won the lottery because it was known in the room that he wanted to be in New York. No kidding. I just think it's all bears watching and it all is why the nba in general at the best of times is super intriguing i love it i think it's great i don't think ad comes back no matter what i think that relationship with the fan base is severed plus if you know zion was to come back you think ad wants to be the villain in his own team where they're happy for zion it's not ad's team anymore it's zion's team we never thought lebron was going to come back to cleveland after they're burning his jersey until they came back and he won them a title but like if they have one of the best teams in the west depending on what happens with the warriors and the lakers still being inept and hiring frank vogel for some reason i think the pelicans fans will get behind ad when he's blocking shots and he's throwing lobs to to zion The, the question for me is for all the very same reasons why AD wanted out, because he didn't trust the Benson family because he was a first overall pick that wasted a lot of good years in that market with that team without any success, are all the very same reasons why Sion, who may sign with the same agency, would not want to be in New Orleans. Yeah, the only, uh, and this point keeps getting brought up, people are like, well, David Griffin's there now, David Griffin's there now. I'm like, I don't know why that changes the ownership situation of having an old lady who's running the team who's like, when is Saints training camp (laughs) she's like why am i at these football games why is drew Brees not here i don't care about zion how much money is seattle offering because we will take it Uh, yeah in terms of the market i'm not a big fan i think that they have a really unique opportunity to really think about what the knicks offer could be and reuniting zion and rj and i think that is a really marketable thing and if you're talking about a place that's having difficulty keeping people I think it would please Zion Williamson to be like, hey, you get to play with your best bud from college. You guys are going to be staying together. You can build something together. Hey, your unfinished business from college, that's over now. You're never going to be able to go rewrite the past. But let's go forward in the future and let's get this championship. Like, let's go get this title. You two together. We'll build around you the next seven years. The Benson wife is going to throw all the money around you guys. David Griffin is going to build a contender around you guys. Let's go. That to me is more attractive than... Hey, here's Jason Tatum coming in. He's super sour. He hates that he's here. He's not going to pass it to you. He's going to shoot long-range twos, and then he's going to demand a trade request a year from now. Like, I just think there's a lot to the Knicks thing, and I really do feel like that is the best situation for the Knicks. That's the best situation for the Pelicans. It's the best situation for the NBA and its fans. Coming out of this, the Pelicans need someone they can put on the side of their building that they can sell. 
And if what, the situation you outlined happens, like if Zion was to go back to college, which I, again, I really don't believe it, even with Windhorst saying it, I just, I can't believe that would ever happen. It would be such a ballsy and unprecedented move. Even if Zion did leave or forced his way out and somehow, then you just, you do, you have to strip down the, what is it called? Smoothie center. Like it's over. Smoothie King center. Smoothie King center is done. Like you got to board it up. You got to be like, all right, Vegas, Seattle, Kansas city, Vancouver, you put together your packages. You can have this thing as early as next week because there's no hope for New Orleans. And again, it's not that he's going to play for Duke next year, although he seems to really love playing for Duke and thought it was crazy when people suggest that he was going to sit out the second half of the season. Yeah, is that, that he used crazy. that ability as leverage the same way Kiki Bandaway has, for the same trade. way the Manning family has in the NFL. To be traded. Yeah, he's going to pull a Manning. He's going to pull a Lindros. He's going to pull a Stevie franchise. Oh, that would be miserable. <laughs> Zion, to go from the most popular player, I like they put up a graphic ESPN did before the draft of Zion Williamson having like as many Twitter followers as anybody in the NBA right now. He's never even played. Like this kid is unbelievably popular. If I'm his agent, I would be telling him there's no way that the money we're going to make in New York is going to be greater than the losses that we're going to have from you turning full heel and becoming someone that forced his way into a big market. Th- that I disagree with. Yeah, see, I, I think that so much of Zion's brand is that you love him. Like where, you want to root for him. Where do those brands find themselves? Which mm-hmm. ones? The likable ones? No, well, I mean, what the, happened? The no. actual brands, Under Armour, Nike, Levi's, whoever he decides. Oh, he'll still Vitamin get a sneaker water. contract. I'm just saying that every other thing is like, you get to be the baby face of the NBA. Like, I think Zion Williamson, as of right now, is the number one commodity when it comes to advertisers in the NBA, which is, well, at, sorry, two, after LeBron. You want LeBron one, he's got the most recognition. After LeBron, I think Zion's already surpassed Steph Curry. Like, if it was me and I was trying to sell something, if it was like, okay, the J.D. Bunkus company, I'm like, get me Zion Williamson. I'm going to hook everybody. I'm going to have him dunk in a commercial, and we're going to rake in our new business. And Zion says it with his big smile, and everybody loves him. Big butt, let's go. Right. And listen, I'm not saying you can't sell shoes in markets other than New York and LA because that's mm. clearly not true. We live in an Everybody's e-commerce society. Zions. Russell Westbrook has his own shoe. He plays in Oklahoma City. Yeah. Andrew I, Wiggins I, has his own shoe. He plays or, in Minnesota. Did he ever get that shoe? I feel like last minute the, he, like, he, he was a, like, he, or Adidas was like, yeah. He know. had a PE, a player exclusive. So a specific yeah, but style the, and colorway of one of their. Yeah, but then their, they never went full the way. They never went all the way. One of their pre existing shoes. Wiggins was like the girl on the side, the mistress, where it's like, I'm going to leave my wife for you. Don't worry, Andrew. It's like, okay, I'll wait here with my colorway, the PE. Well, I mean, <laughs> Derek Rose, Tracy McGrady's. Second half of his career. Yeah, Adidas it, has taken some L's. Yeah, they were going to fall basketball. all the way down to Andrew Wiggins. Still have Harden. Steph Curry was not seen as someone who could sell shoes in Oakland until he was seen as someone who could sell shoes in Oakland. So no question he could sell shoes wherever, but no question that his value to a brand is higher if he's in New York and you can have him right there for sure. Fashion Week events, for events with partners as a heel though he'd have to grow a goatee and be like now he's evil zion i I don't think people care about the pelicans enough to be that upset that he is the most recent but it's a long list but it's what the pelicans represent right i don't think anybody cares about new orleans that much either it's just that it's a small market and you're saying well if the small market team can't even have a draft pick go to them then what hope do they have in this league where super teams are already created and guys have not really been able to retain stars. Like, I, I just think that that's a nightmare from Adam Silver. Like, if that was to happen, it's a cataclysmic event for the NBA. It's a, it starts a national conversation about small markets. It starts a national conversation about Zion Williamson and his character. Like, it's a lot. That's it, a lot no, of undertaking. But it should start a national start conversation on 
Run your team properly. You don't have to worry about it. But Giannis you think is New happy could, in Milwaukee. Yeah. So yeah, get your house in order guy, and run a real organization. The Pelicans have been run on the side of the Saints for the last three, four, five years. They're now starting mm-hmm. to invest because they've got Griffin, and he's basically said, I'm not coming unless you get a proper practice facility and you give me a real front office and give me the ability to hire people. But they've basically tried to trim the hedges and compete at the same time. And I don't blame Anthony Davis to be like, why should I, one— play here and waste my prime when your focus is on your bottom line and not winning championships. You like, should have been an agent, you know? Me? Yeah, you're just, you're so player friend. I'm surprised you didn't come with the take today of just like, no NBA draft. Like, let these guys sign where they want. I agree with I, that as I well. know you do. <laughs> There's no doubt. Wow. I want to put literally uh, all the money I have, okay. sir, on this I'm, is, I'm anti-draft This coming well, from a guy who works for the biggest radio station yep. in Toronto. If Coming out of college, there was a sports radio They're going to pay me millions and, of dollars. I would have been like, yeah, let's go. You're earning potential in terms of side deals, getting little side influencer deals, sponsorships please. would have been less if you were working for the local station in Barrie yeah. or Yellowknife no. relative to the one in Toronto. Listen, so you should I would have never empathetic. gone to Yellowknife. I would have pulled the Stevie franchise. I would have held out. I was like, get me out of here. I would have put that out there right away. But I love Yellowknife. I'm just I'm a Yukon boy. So anybody who listens to this Yellowknife, no hate. It's just it is what it is. Can't wait for you to go work there. Uh, this has been Free Association. I would be lucky. Feel free to tell JD that he's wrong. Subscribe, share, do all those things.